My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international law. In my first two lectures on international law, I distinguish between the different types of laws that make up the global framework. We have, on one hand, municipal or state or domestic law, but then also outer state, supranational, international and transnational law. So I spend some time explaining these different classifications. In the next part of the lecture, I look at the different roles that international law plays within the global legal framework. On one hand, we see it as a system of social order regulating relations between nation states, but on the other hand, it's a mechanism of control whereby nation states articulate how they are going to qualify their sovereignty. And finally, international law has also played an important part as an instrument of domination. Not all states are equal, either in terms of economics, military power, access to resources, and so on. And as a result, this disparity in power can translate into power struggles between various nations, with some able to exert greater influence, greater authority, greater control over the lives of others. International law is a fascinating subject, fascinating not just because of the substance itself, but fascinating because it provides you with a tool with which to understand many of the developments that are underway in the world today. So you have questions about why some people are trafficked. International law can help explain that. You might have questions as to why the UK is exiting the European Union. International law can help with that. There are a variety of ways in which you can study international law and that will help you better understand not just the legal framework of the world but also of the domestic jurisdiction in which you are operating. This module is going to be co-taught by four of us. Now, one of the reasons why we take this approach in terms of team teaching, each one of us is necessarily capable of teaching the subject matter on our own. There is a pedagogical reason behind it. Now, something that I hope you learned in legal theory last year, one of the things that I'm hoping you recall is that you can study law, you can engage with law in a variety of ways. One of the ways that you engage with law is what is known as a doctrinal approach. Doctrinal, relatively straightforward. I have a statute, I have a treaty, I have a bylaw. I examine this and then I examine the associated jurisprudence. How have the courts resolved disputes in which one of the provisions of said law was at issue? That is, in essence, a doctrinal approach. As many of you know, at the University of Warwick, we do not adopt a doctrinal approach. We go with a contextual approach. So that does not mean that we don't engage with the law itself. What it means is that we go beyond just the text and the interpretations of that text. This is where the contextual approach comes in. 
There are different ways of engaging the law from a contextual perspective. One of those would be a critical approach. Critical legal studies is particularly interested in power relationships. So it's looking at the law and the context surrounding the law and the power relationships that either resulted in the law looking the way it does or the power relationships that are going to emerge as a result of the way the law was crafted. That is a critical legal studies approach. Some of you will have studied or might recall law and feminism. This is also a contextual approach. And there, our issue has to do with gender relations. Laws do not impact upon people in the same ways, and as a result, we explore the differential impact that can precipitate from a law. Those who adopt a feminist approach are specifically interested in the differential impact upon gender. A third one, socio-legal studies. Socio-legal approach, we begin with the text, the law itself, but then we are also interested in the subtext. What is the aspiration, the ambition? Why was the law created? What is it meant to achieve? So the text and then the subtext, but in addition we add the third part, so we have a triangle in place, the context. And this is where the teaching team comes in. So my approach, and then I'll turn over to Professor Ming Sung so he can tell you his approach. My approach to engaging with international law in my research is primarily what is known as TWAIL, Third World Approaches to International Law. And what I am most interested in are the divisions that exist between what has historically been referred to as the First World and the Third World. The first world being former European imperial powers and the third world being all of the lands that they colonized. And as we will learn this week and again next week and throughout this course, colonization, colonialism has played a key part in structuring international law. So if I were to study international law from a doctrinal perspective, then all I'm looking at are the treaties, the customs, which laws make it to the status of use cogens, terms that you'll come to understand as the semester progresses. But if I study it from a twill perspective, then I understand a little bit about why some societies are mired in poverty and others seem to be eternally wealthy. I understand why some societies have a life expectancy of 52 and others have a life expectancy of 84. I understand why in some places, people are dying right now from a bong being dropped on them or right now of a hunger-related disease and why all of you are sitting here very comfortably, hopefully enjoying the lecture. You cannot understand that if you merely study it from a doctrinal perspective, but you can understand it if you study it from a twail perspective. And that is precisely the way I examine the law, the way I investigate legal problems. But if you were to only take this module with me, then the result would be that you would have a skewed vision of international law. You would understand international law primarily from a twail perspective. Now there are many strengths to that, but there are also many weaknesses to that. Enter the teaching team. 
And Professor Ming Sung takes a different approach towards his engagement with international law. Professor Tor and Professor Sharifa, each of them take a different approach. Is there overlap? Well, I suspect it's more Venn diagram than anything else between us. But it's those points of distinction that you will pick up on throughout the module as you see that when Professor Ming Sung takes over, he will be presenting it to you in a different manner. And that is something that you will benefit from as you will come to understand that there is no single unitary hegemonic way of studying international law or of practicing international law. There are a variety. So the teaching team provides you with that. So now I'll leave Ming Sung to speak to that in a few minutes, and then I'll take over again afterwards. Now, international law. The favorite title in a series of articles and books about international law is always, what is international law? Now that question is critical on some level, controversial on others, largely because it was being posed by domestic lawyers, municipal lawyers, lawyers who were operating with a state system and had difficulty conceptualizing what international law actually is. Now let me explain that to you. There are roughly 100 students enrolled in this module. I think the number might be somewhere around 97 or so. Double that number and you're getting close to the number of members of the United Nations. Meaning, if you were to double the number of people in this room, you might come close to the number of sovereign states that we have in the world. If each one of you represents a sovereign state. Each one of you has a distinct legal system. Just as each one of you has a set of parents, each one of you has an ethnicity, each one of you has some cosmology, each one of you has grown up in a particular community, each one of you has had a number of experiences, all of those combined shape who you are. They shape the values you hold. They shape the expectations you have of others. They shape how you think you should relate, how you should behave, what you should aspire to. Notice, should, should, should. And what is the likelihood that yours are identical to hers? and that they are identical to his, and identical to every other person's in this room? And the answer, none. There is no chance. So long as each one of you operates as a distinct, a unitary entity, no problem. Anyone comes to your home, there are a series of rules that you expect them to abide by. And if they choose not to abide by those rules, what do you do? You're smiling, what would you do? Yes, you would have them leave. It's very simple. But if you want to collaborate with your neighbor, then you have to reach some type of common ground. International law is merely a system of global social order. We recognize that each one of us is sovereign within our own home. In international legal terms, each one of us is sovereign within our territory. 
But we know that beyond our territory are other sovereigns with the same sovereignty that we enjoy. So this brings us to the first question, how do you establish a legal order between equal sovereign states? Let's go back to the example I gave you. Each one of you, or the metaphor that I'm working with, each one of you represents a state. Each one of you has your own distinct identity, your own aspirations, your own expectations, your own resources, your own practices. The list goes on and on. Everything is yours because everything has developed within your national community. But now something happens that requires you to engage with others. Consider aviation. Do people only fly within their borders? Of course not. They fly through the borders across the jurisdiction of others. How are we going to regulate that? What type of airplanes can fly? Would you be comfortable if she were going to send 17 F-16s to fly across your nation? What do those F-16s have? Bombs. So I don't want you sending those planes into my territory because that puts me at risk. Are you comfortable with her sending some civilians on a commercial flight across your airspace? Well, if they happen to land there, what might they do? Maybe they get a hotel room. Maybe they eat at a restaurant. Maybe they visit some sites. Maybe they buy some goods. Maybe they engage in economic activity that benefits your society. So I'm comfortable with the commercial type, but not so comfortable with the military type. Well, we need some kind of an agreement here. And what if she says, I'm not planning on bombing you. We're at peace. There's no issue there. But I have a base located on the other side. And I either have to expend double the amount of fuel to go around, or if I were to fly at such an altitude that it's evident I pose no risk to you. Would that be acceptable? Part of the compromise that you reach. And of course, the question that you would ask her is, all right, if I agree to this, what do I get in exchange? Now, how do then we establish a legal framework between equal sovereign states through negotiations? And this is, as I said to you before, what makes international law difficult for municipal lawyers, domestic lawyers. It makes it difficult for them. Why? Do we make laws? Does Westminster negotiate with the public? Do they negotiate with other political parties? Do they negotiate with unions, with corporations? Are they negotiating over which laws are going to pass? And only if they obtain agreement, then it becomes law? Yes, we have influence and interest and conversations and lobbyists and all of that. But ultimately, Parliament decides. Parliament makes law. But with international law, what if she walks away and says, no, 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 this treaty doesn't suit me? Does she say, it doesn't matter, I'm imposing it on you anyway? There isn't that possibility. So there is no superordinate authority no supreme authority or supreme entity that can decide it is only done through processes of negotiation. Now, I said to you, a favorite question is, what is international law? And a favorite answer is that it is a system of social order built on negotiation and compromise between equal and sovereign states. Now, that is partially accurate. And there is another 
potential definition of international law. International law is also a mechanism of control. We are in the process of negotiating a global treaty around human trafficking. The prohibitions, the penalties, the instances where investigations are going to be carried out, the processes um, that we're going to implement to deal with people who are trafficked, and we want this negotiated on a global scale. Why? Why should human trafficking be negotiated on a global scale and not be merely be left to individual states? It occurs between nations. We're referring to trafficking. You're moving somebody across borders. Trafficking is a transnational crime. In a nation state, what happens if we are within the borders, I come up and I nab her and I take her away. Am I engaged in trafficking? Kidnapping, abduction. I have abducted her. What if I sell her to someone else? Is it trafficking? Till I cross the border, this is merely a matter of the Crimes Act. It's domestic law. We're not referring to anything transnational. It's not a transnational crime. And it can be dealt with by the sovereign state. And the sovereign state does deal with abductions, does deal with instances of enslavement. But we decide that we should deal with this at a global level because it is going to be individuals from your jurisdiction who are trafficked into your jurisdiction. And then after you try to identify them and try to break up that ring, they move and they go to her jurisdiction. There is this movement that takes place. So the only way to deal with it then is by ensuring that the protections, the prosecutions that are in place can address the transnational character of the crime. But when you as a state agree, as we said, you have to agree to a treaty. You have to consent to it. If you don't consent, it can't be forced upon you because there is no global superordinate authority that can impose it upon you. So it requires your consent. Now, when you consent to it, what are you doing? Now, this is an interesting point, particularly because of the conversations that are taking place in the UK today. What you are doing when you consent to that treaty is surrendering a portion of your sovereignty. You are voluntarily, and this is what we refer to as the doctrine of voluntarism, you are voluntarily agreeing to curtail, to qualify, to circumscribe your sovereignty by consenting to the measures included in the treaty, the terms of the treaty. Whatever the treaty says, you are consenting to it and you are saying now, this is what I commit to complying with. Are you required to do that? No, of course not. Why? You are sovereign. Nobody can compel a sovereign state to do anything. That's the nature of sovereignty. So since I can't compel you to, you must voluntarily agree to it consent to it. So you consent and you say, hey, you know what? I am going to agree to this treaty. I have my reasons, whatever they may be, but I will agree to this treaty. I won't agree to that provision within the treaty and I won't agree to that other treaty. And you can add that as a protocol, terms you'll become familiar with as the term progresses, but I am willing to qualify my sovereignty in these ways.
So when I say it is a mechanism of control, I mean a mechanism of universal control. This is what is referred to in the literature as bounded rationality. I am binding myself within a particular logic. For example, in relation to human trafficking, I am accepting the assertion that abduction is wrong and criminal. I am accepting the assertion that if that abduction results in the transport of that person beyond national borders, then that ceases to be a domestic matter and is now an international matter, an international crime. And because it qualifies as an international crime, I am accepting that it must be regulated, tackled, dealt with in the manner prescribed in the treaty that I have just assented to. I am qualifying my sovereignty because I am saying I commit to these assertions. I commit to these responsibilities. I commit to these obligations. So I am binding myself within a particular logic. Does everyone agree on all things that should be criminal? Certainly not. Give you an example. What if I happen to be somebody who enjoys a little bit of this now and again? Can I do that here in the UK? I cannot. Can I do it in Amsterdam? I can, sort of. What happens if I do it in the UK? I am committing a crime. What if I do it in Canada? Louder? Right. And in fact, they're pushing through the legalization of even recreational consumption. What if I were, I just returned from Singapore yesterday, what if I were to light one up in Singapore? Right. They have the death penalty, not so much just for consumption, but primarily for trafficking. I took a photo of the landing card in which it says very clearly that traffickers will be put to death. That's the statement. So is Singapore or are Singapore and Canada and the UK and the Netherlands likely to reach, likely to adopt a treaty regulating the consumption of marijuana? No. So remember what I said before, a treaty requires some level of common ground, some level of compromise. International is achieved through negotiations. You are saying, I am willing to qualify my sovereignty in these ways. Singapore is not willing to qualify their sovereignty in the way that Canada might around the issue of marijuana consumption, meaning they will not sign a treaty on it. So we say it's a mechanism of control because we are binding ourselves to a particular rationality. We are limiting the options available before us. Now there is a third answer to the question of what is international law. First one, system of social order. Second one, mechanism of control. The third one, international law, is also an instrument of domination. As I said to you before, and as you observed, there is no one who can impose international law upon us. 
And if there is no one who can impose it upon us, then what can we deduce? What is also lacking? Consider it this way. If I were now to take your classmate's laptop and run out of the room, what will I have done? Right, it is theft. I've committed an act of theft. And is she going to chase after me? Tackle me to get it back? Probably not. Okay, she's saying she will. <laughs> right, so I will stand on this side <laughs> of the room. Let's say I were dealing with a more peaceful individual. What are they likely to do? They will call the police. And what will the police do? Investigate and likely arrest me for theft. And then afterwards, I will be prosecuted and reprimanded for the act of theft. Great? Very clear. Now what happens when you breach a treaty? We said before that we do not have the ability to impose a treaty, which means what ability do we also lack? Precisely. The ability to enforce the treaty. So when we say it is an instrument of domination, what we are pointing to, and this is where a critical perspective, a contextual perspective, a twail perspective comes into the picture, we are pointing to the disparities of power between sovereign states. So each one of you, as I said, has a history. Each one of you has a series of experiences. Each one of you possesses a number of abilities, competencies, and such. All of you are different in different ways. Some in the room are wealthier than others. Some in the room are stronger than others. Some are faster than others. Some are more compassionate than others. Some are friendlier than others. Some are more belligerent than others. There are these differences, and these differences are often exploited to the advantage of some and to the detriment of others. I give you an example. Do any of you go to bed worrying that a coalition of the willing of, say, Algeria, Tunisia, Mali and Senegal are going to bomb you tomorrow? You don't. It's not something you think about, not something you fret about. Which countries were bombed this past year? Any in Europe? Any in Africa? Yes, many in Africa. And by whom? European countries. All right. What about last year? Last year, right? Everything going on, that toggle, that, that, that uh, tussle, that tug of war that we had between Johnson and May all of this, right, coming to a head. And other countries said, we need to teach those Brits a lesson. Were you worried last year about being bombed? No. Were any African countries bombed last year? Yes, many of them were. By whom? By Europe. And the year before, and the year before that, and the year before that. Notice a pattern here? There is one group of countries that seem to be the perpetual aggressors. And there is another group of countries that are perpetually on the receiving end of that aggression. But all those countries that are being bombed are having their sovereignty violated. The individuals who are being killed 
by those bombs are having their rights violated. There is the United Nations Charter, which prevents any member state from using force, aggression against another member state. Are European states members? Yes. Are African states members? Yes. Is Europe using force against African states? Yes. Are they in breach of the United Nations Charter? Yes. Is anyone going to consequence them for it? No. So when we say that it is an instrument of domination, we are pointing to the context in which these treaties manifest. I said to you earlier, colonialism was central to the development of international law. So I'm pointing out then that colonialism, which in itself involved the conquering, conquest, conquering the land of others, massacring scores of the original inhabitants, going to other nations, enslaving the people, transporting them, all of that in itself was part of the foundation of international law. So if colonialism is part of international law, then when we look at international law today in a post-colonial world, we are still looking at what are known as colonial legacies. And those colonial legacies result in power differentials that can be manipulated, that can be exploited, that can be leveraged. So when someone asks you the question, what is international law? You know now to say that there are a variety of answers. And it's not about, oh, it is this or it is that. It is that the nature of international law is complex. It is layered. And so when engaging with international law, it is vital that we approach it with nuance, with care, with diligence. Now, I only have a few minutes remaining. And in the final few minutes, what I would like to say to you is that the world legal framework, and by this I mean all the laws that we see in operation in the world today, can be divvied up into different categories. And to date, most of you have only studied two of them, when there are in fact five. I'm going to mention them now, say a couple of words about it, and then we'll conclude and continue on Thursday. Now you have already studied municipal law or domestic law. Think of the Crimes Act, think of the Tax Act, think of the Corporation Act. Think of the Housing Act. All of these are domestic law. These are British laws. But you have also studied EU law. And EU law is not domestic law. EU law is what we refer to as supranational law. So we have domestic law, national law on one hand, but then we have supranational sitting above. And this usually involves a series of states agreeing that they are going to construct not just a legal framework, but legal institutions that mimic those on the national scale, but at the supranational one to mediate the relations between all of these different states. So what does that mean? 
We have Westminster, but we also have the European Parliament. We have a Supreme Court, but we also have the European Court of Justice. We have a cabinet, but we also have a commission. Parliamentary, legislative, judicial power that exists in all member states at the national level also exists at the supranational. There is a third type of law, which you haven't studied and are unlikely to study except in the context of international law, and that is known as outer state law. Outer state law is merely a statement, an assertion by a sovereign as to how they are going to behave beyond their borders. They say, when we go beyond our borders, we will take it upon ourselves to treat others in this way. We will engage in these activities. Now, that's an interesting statement to make, largely because others are there as well. Once you go beyond your borders, there are other people. But you are making a declaration to them that this is how we will treat you. And outer state law was the basis, of course, of colonialism. There is a fourth type, which we've already discussed and I won't say much more about, international law. And that, as I said, all of you are sovereign states, all of you want to participate in a treaty, all of you engage in negotiations, and ultimately some of you decide you're going to sign the treaty, some of you will assent to the treaty and implement it. And voila, now we have international law, inter-nation. Do we need to have an international parliament? No. Do we need an international cabinet? No. International law is not the same as supranational law. It is distinct in that way. Fifth type. New type came about probably a little less than a generation ago. Transnational law. Transnational law. And if you can't really see, well, I think some of you can see, imagine we had here a state, another state. This one has domestic law. So anything that happens within its jurisdiction is a case of domestic law. These three nations decide they want to form a union and they're going to create a supranational regime. This would then be supranational law. They sign a treaty with this one. That is international law. They declare that anything that happens beyond their borders will be dealt with in the following way. Outer state law. But then all these countries decide that they are going to establish an institution that is responsible for certain affairs and the agreement itself is going to be decided by this transnational institution and then downloaded into all of these societies. And there is no discussion to be had. Now, of course, that calls into questions around sovereignty. So we'll end it there and we'll continue this conversation on what is international law on Thursday. See you then.